you would turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40, keeping in mind what we just sang, the worship of God, the worship of the King. And I want us to think of him exactly in that way, as the King of all things, the King of the universe himself, and then what we read about what he's doing in Exodus chapter 40. As you're turning there, just a couple words on The last chapter we were in was chapter 34. The reason we are not going to look at the details of chapter 35, chapters 35 through 39, is that we did cover them as we went through the temple furnishings. Those chapters are there and inserted there to show that it was fulfilled what was commanded by God in those chapters. In those earlier chapters, God had commanded, this is how you are to make it. And in those chapters, we see the Israelites make it exactly as he had said. And so it's repeated there to show that they did all as God God had commanded. It's repeated there as well as it sort of centers and highlights the, the episode of the golden calf. You have the, the instructions of the temple tabernacle and its furnishings. We have the sin of the golden calf, and then we have them carrying out after their forgiveness and the reforming of the covenant with them that they did indeed proceed on. It's also repeated because it's so important repeated there to emphasize what the people of Israel were called to do. We'll see that here in Exodus 40 as they were called to worship the Lord. The whole second half of Exodus is centering and and really hitting home that point of worship. That remember what Moses said to Pharaoh, he had called the people out of Egypt that they may serve the Lord. The whole point was that they were called out of Egypt into the wilderness to worship, and we see that in that text. And as well, the repetition of those chapters likely shows that the golden golden calf incident had been put behind them, that it had not compromised their worship in any way. That's for that repetition, but we did cover that in the earlier chapters, and so we move to Exodus 40. Before we read, let's pray. Father in heaven, as we turn to your word, the conclusion of the book of Exodus, we pray that you would be glorified and that we would see here the king who is worshipped, the great king who is ruler of all the nations of this very globe, but of the universe itself, who spins the galaxy in his palm who knows what every molecule and atom, whatever the smallest particle that exists is, you know it, you uphold it. And yet you, this great God in this time and place in redemptive history, came down into an earthly tent. You came down to dwell with people, your people. You came down to allow them to worship you as you made a covenant relationship with them, indeed binding yourself, finite man. We praise you for what we see here. We praise you for what we have learned throughout the book of Exodus, when you have revealed yourself to your people in a profound, mighty way. We ask that we would see that here. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. 
You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing oil, their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went into the tent of meeting. And when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. And this portion of our reading is our text this morning. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Ascends the reading of God's word. J.R.R. Tolkien, in his great work, The Hobbit, tells the story of Bilbo Baggins, this little fantasy creature, this hobbit who goes on a journey with a group of dwarves to go steal from a dragon. It was written as a children's book. It was written for adventures and for this tale. And Bilbo, the character, the main character in the book, 
writes a story, writes a book about his journeys, and he titles it There and Back Again. A rather simple title, There and Back Again. And in one sense, The Hobbit ends as it begins, if you're at all familiar with that story. He sets out from the house that he did not want to leave, experiences all these adventures, comes back to the same house, sets it up again the same way, and continues on in his life. And you could say, in one sense, it was a tale that didn't change much. In one sense, he went there, to this mountain, to this dragon, to the riches, encountered battles and all these things, and yet came back. Nothing happened in one sense. He he went there and came back. And yet, if you're familiar with the story, you realize that's, that's not at all what happened. The events of that adventure, the events of, events of him going there and coming back have actually set the stage for all that will take place in that fantasy realm and sets the stage for Tolkien's great work, The Lord of the Rings, and all that takes place there. Why, why are we talking about that? Well, in one sense, Exodus could be viewed as a, as a, as a there and back again tale. They were in the land of Canaan. They were there with Abraham. This land was promised, and then the patriarchs and Jacob leave, and they they go to Egypt. They go there, and and Exodus is the tale of them coming back again. And if it's said in that way, you would think, well, yes, it was sort of isolated. Well, that's a pretty interesting tale that we read. They went there to Egypt. They've come back. Great. And yet, just like you'd know if you had read The Hobbit and We know, as we've read Exodus, that's not the case at all. Exodus has set the stage for redemptive history itself. It was not a simple, they went there and came back. Everything has changed. They've come back and the world itself has changed. The foundation has been laid for the grand story of redemption, for the grand story of Christ. That's what Exodus has done And there's a sense, as we come to the end of this book, there's a sense of joy and accomplishment going through a long series. That's not very popular today, to go through every chapter of a long book. It's not something many like to do, but there's a sense of joy and accomplishment in understanding it in its depth. As you progress through this this book, we live it with the people. You experience the slavery, the genocide, being worked to death people. You experience the thrill and joy when Moses is called to bring them out. And as he comes, and then you experience the the might of God and the plagues and what he did to deliver them. And you spend time seeing what was done. And then you come to the wilderness wanderings and what the people needed to learn there and to trust in God as they're brought to the mountain. And then you encounter God with the people in the mountain. And we see what they went through and what they experienced Experiencing the very holiness of God itself, a covenant arrangement. You experience the law in its detail, all that God had required the people to do, the stipulations, very detailed in what it says. You experience the formulation of the tabernacle and the furnishings in their depth and detail. All the while we see what God is doing in it, all the while we see what Christ is doing in it, and you get to experience it as we walk through it and see it in its depth. What we see is the goal of Exodus, and this is the theme for us this morning, the goal of Exodus is reunion with God, which is fulfilled in Christ. The goal of Exodus is reunion with God, which is filled in Christ. The second half of Exodus is actually far grand, more grand, grander than the first half. The first half has all the stories we love 
All those Sunday school stories, all that God did, the plagues, the burning bush, these things that we're so familiar with. But the second half is actually far superior to the first. And why is that? Because they are now dwelling with God, something that they had not done before since Adam had fallen. To illustrate this, this is the difference between seeing the president, seeing the president come and, and so arrange his armies and defend the people like, like it. Think of us, think of America, think of seeing the ruler come and defend us. You see him commanding and he saves us. And it's the difference between that in the first half and that same president coming to you and saying, I'm going to live with you. I'm going to dwell with you. That, that person in this illustration, the one who protected you, who delivered you with his mighty arm, who possesses all this authority, he's not just going to now ride away. He's not just done. He's coming to dwell with you and your house. That's what God is doing. He declares his might and power in the first half, but he declares his love and fellowship in the second half of the book. And that's what we come to in Exodus chapter 40. We come to the presence of God. That's our first point, the presence of God. Again, the blessing of going through the book of Exodus in these details, we're waiting for it. The very length of all the details of the furnishing just heightens this anticipation. We're anticipating, when is this going to happen? Consecrate this. Do this. Set this apart. Just as I've commanded. Even in chapter 40. How often don't you read? And Moses did exactly what the Lord had commanded. That's been going on in all these chapters. When is this going to happen? This very tabernacle being built so that God would dwell with us. When will it take place? Then the golden calf incident happens. And we think all's lost. The people just lost it. Even as they were told to do this and create the very tent that the Lord would come to them and dwell with them in. They've lost it, but no, and then they do it again. And the details repeated, and now in chapter 40, finally, God's presence comes from the mountain and dwells in the tent. That mountain that they couldn't touch, they had to stay away. No one was allowed, only Moses, only he could go up. He goes up and encounters God in amazing ways. You read of Exodus, there's lightning striking the mountain. There's like a great burning going on. There's thunder, it's voices, and all of that. That's on the mountain. That's the presence of God. And yet now, the cloud, the glory cloud of the Lord, descends to this earthly tent. All for the purpose that the Lord would go with them. We went through all the furnishings and what they did. They shielded the people from the presence of God. They revealed the gospel itself. We saw the provision of priests and high priests and that they would stand between the people and their sin and they would represent God and or they would represent God to the people and the people to God. They would be that intercessor. All this is in place for the presence of God to come. And so this end is the capstone. It's the beautiful centerpiece of Exodus. It's the purpose purpose of Exodus is to worship the Lord and to have his presence to worship him. And that's what they get here. The timing of it is set in our text. It's the first day of the first month. This is the anniversary of Israel's exodus from Egypt. On that very anniversary, this is when God descends on the tabernacle. This shows it's the culmination of it all. It's the culmination of the exodus itself. The, be, the very being brought out of Egypt, being, being forgiven and being taken from this land of death and slavery, is on that anniversary God dwells in the tent. We see his presence. 
particularly in verses 34 to 38, our text, it, it highlights and heightens God's presence. How does it do this? It shows that Moses himself may not come near. Moses, who had been up on Mount Sinai, who had seen in this way the glory of God, even as God shielded him from his full presence when he asked to see God, he can't approach as the, the cloud is descending on Sinai, well, what, on the tabernacle. What would that show us? It shows us God is there. This is not some half representation. The fullness of God in this way, and when I say fullness of God, I'm meaning his glory, not as it would burn up the whole camp were it to be fully revealed, but the, the genuineness, God himself, is coming here in a representative way, in a special way to show that he is dwelling with the people, and in such a way that the very mountain itself, where Moses would approach God, he's not even able to approach this tabernacle. As the glory cloud descends, it's the real presence of God. They're not getting a second-hand part of it. It hasn't been thwarted or lost. And this is so important when we realize what the Israelites had done in their sin with the golden calf. This reveals all is forgiven. Moses' intercession proved effective. God is there. He did not limit himself. He is there exactly as he had promised, even before they had sinned. He's there again. The intensity of that glory shows up. And just imagine it, as we even read in our text, the glory cloud of God was there with them through all their journeys. And when the cloud would rise up and depart, they would know to go. At night, they were able to see that fire. They were able to see God is there, he's with us. What did that glory cloud look like? How did they see it? I have no idea. But there was some physical representation of the presence of God that they could look at and see he's with us. In all their journey, the presence of God. Just think of that. That's why we sang that song to begin, O worship the King. This is the King of all things dwelling with you, his people, who by now know enough that you don't deserve it, not worthy how dangerous he is, and yet he's there because he's merciful and gracious. He has provided for your protection even from himself as he loves. And that's amazing news. And the joy that comes, it's profound. Mentioning the fact that Moses could not approach was not to place Moses in a negative light per se. It was to show the intensity of his presence. But it also does remind us as well, and I'm just going to interject this here as a little representation, a little call out, as it were, to Christ. Even right there, you see that Moses cannot approach this presence. And so Exodus, this, this Old Testament representation of redemption, has a mediator who doesn't approach the presence of God. It's too intense. And yet where we stand in this greater Exodus, we have one who is never brought away, who's never unable to approach the presence of God. So we see that even there, even just that little, that little piece of information that Moses can't approach. It shows the intensity of the presence. It also shows that Christ is far greater. So that's the presence of God, the very hope. Now we move to our second point. There and back again. There and back again. Having walked through this book this point, this there and back again, is to focus us to reflect on it from our point of view, almost as, 
It's like we're Bilbo having done our trip, and we've gone there and come back, and we are here reflecting on what has happened. The Exodus had begun in earnest with the formation of the people of God. Prior had been patriarchs in their initial formation, but here it's the people. God comes to his people in their plurality, even calling them, calling Israel his own son. The Exodus motif, the Exodus theme, is arguably the theme of the Bible itself. That's how important this is. The theme, Exodus, being brought out from sin, saved from sin, back to the presence of God, is arguably the center theme of all of God's word, of redemption. If Genesis is the origins of redemption, and it is, Exodus is the method of redemption. If Genesis is the origins of redemption, Exodus is the method of redemption. What do we mean by the method of redemption? Well, we see that it is being saved from slavery, brought back to the presence of God. And how does he do that? How does Exodus reveal this will be done? Substitutionary atonement through blood brought by a mediator. There's the method. Substitutionary atonement through blood brought by a mediator. That's present in Genesis and the sacrifices the patriarchs make, but it's brought to light here. How are they saved from Egypt? As we saw that representation of our own sin and slavery to sin and the devil. How are they saved from that? It's the Passover. It's the Passover and a lamb that is their substitutionary atonement. And then we see in the tabernacle and in its function the same point made. And how is that Brought out, how is that method carried out? It's done through priests, it's done through Moses, it's done through a mediator. So Exodus shows that method, substitutionary atonement through blood, brought by a mediator. Obviously, this method is one that continues all the way to Christ himself. God is showing it, he's laying the foundation. This is how Exodus happens. I allowed you to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years so that I could save you and show you that in sin, your enslavement to sin, how are you saved? It's the blood of a lamb. A perfect sacrifice and representative. And Exodus is so important to the rest of God's word. Future praise of God cannot occur now without the knowledge that Exodus provides. Not only is Exodus referred to specifically many times in the praise of God throughout God's word, What God reveals about himself in Exodus permeates all our praise. We saw it in chapter 34, what he reveals about his character. He's gracious and kind, he's patient, he's long-suffering, he's just. That's what he reveals in Exodus. Because Exodus is that point of revealing who God is to the nations, who God is to his people. And so the very praise that we can offer is permeated by the theme of Exodus. Why is that so important? Because it's not just, we don't just praise God for his act of creation. We do that, but that's not what permeates the very center of our praise. What does that is the theme of Exodus, that he has come to save us, to deliver us from sin. We can't even praise God without Exodus being brought out from slavery. Exodus is the covenant making with God's people through the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant that God furthers and deepens. And that's why this, this book is so important. It sets the stage for the rest of redemption. This theme is itself repeated. 
It's repeated again in the exile when the the prophets come and declare to the people, you are sinning against God, you are breaking the law that Moses gave, you will be brought again into exile, into slavery, you will be again brought to the nations, and that happens. And they experience another exodus where they're brought back into the land to illustrate the same point as the original exodus, all to highlight the third movement of exodus done in Christ. You have the three movements, the formal exodus of Egypt, the second exodus of the exile, but the third, the primary, the most important exodus to which the other two point, the exodus in Christ. That's the third and final movement of that exodus theme. Christ is that second Moses. What does Christ do? How does the gospel show that Christ is the answer to exodus? Moses is on the mountain of Sinai a lot. He receives God's word. He intercedes for the people. Moses was known in Israel's history after that as the lawgiver. He was so tied to the law that to speak of Moses was to speak of the law. When Christ comes, he preaches a sermon, the most famous sermon that we know of, the Sermon on the Mount. When he preaches that sermon, he talks about the law and thus declares that he is the second Moses, the giver of the law. That is what Christ is on a mountain As the text highlights, this is a sermon on the mount. It's on the mountain. This is what Christ does. Jesus miraculously feeds people with loaves of bread in such a way that looks back to the very provision that God made for the people with manna. But it is Jesus who multiplies bread. He feeds the people. Jesus, as a child, goes to Egypt with his parents so he could be called out of Egypt And in that gospel reference, it quotes the verse, in Exodus, out of Egypt I've called my son. In Exodus, it meant the people of Israel. And what we see is that the real intention of that would be Jesus, the real son, would be called out of Exodus, not only re-walking the steps of redemption to point to the Exodus and what he's done, but to show that that very instance really pointed to him to what he would do, facing a threat of genocide from another wicked king, being brought out of Egypt to save his people. He is tempted in the wilderness for how long? Forty days and forty nights, the number of years of their wilderness wandering, which occurs after Exodus as they enter into that. He is tempted forty days and forty nights, but he does not succumb as they did, showing that he is the true fulfiller of the law, truly holy The culmination of the delivery of Egypt was the Passover, the shedding of the Lamb's blood. And we think of the Gospels that so clearly present Jesus in this way as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, calling that Exodus imagery. As he institutes the Lord's Supper, he recalls back Exodus 24 and says this is the blood of the new covenant. All this we looked at as we went through Exodus, and yet we see here this is the culmination of it all. The Gospel of John brings this out in a, in a unique way. The Gospel of John sort of bookends its whole message with Jesus as the Passover representation. In chapter 1, there are two references in John to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. And then in John 19, in the crucifixion account, John's the only one who provides the information that Jesus' bones were not broken when they took him down from the cross. A very reference to the Passover Lamb whose bones were not to be broken. He is that Passover lamb, and this is how Christ fulfills it. 
John's Gospel also presents Jesus giving the seven statements, I am, and those are the I am sayings, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection of the life, etc. This is heightened, and the grandeur is shown further here, that this is him identifying himself with the burning bush and the revelation that it would be I am who has come to deliver you. Yahweh himself, Jesus now says, I am. He's the deliverer. As Yahweh, as I am, was revealed to him in the burning bush, Jesus is here to reveal it is him. He's come. The depiction of enslavement to this wicked ruler and Pharaoh and God's faithful love delivers them. Jesus descended and he was sent by the Father to provide for us Exodus. To be the literal door to open, to pass through to salvation. His crucifixion and resurrection formed the only exodus out of the land of slavery to the promised land. The question is, how may, how may Jesus' exodus become ours? Our own experience. The only spirit-wrought passage is through the narrow entry of Jesus' own crucifixion and resurrection. So that central theme of the Bible of exodus is the very central theme of Christ. I am the way. Early Christianity, the followers were called the followers of the way. They followed the way. Christ. The passage of redemption of Exodus in verse 34 brings that in a partial way even to the Old Testament. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But what does John's gospel itself say? Jesus tabernacled among us. Coming in a far more deep and meaningful way in the man, Jesus Christ, than in the tent that represented him. Why does this matter? You are people of Exodus. As we've read through this book, we read of Israel. We sort of place them in isolation. This is the story of, of the Jews. Now, this is your story. Your story in a far more significant way than delivery from a land in, the, in Egypt and a wicked ruler in Pharaoh. It's your very delivery from hell. And the devil to heaven, life. If that does not permeate us, then what are we? But the ignorant Israelites who didn't realize what was going on themselves and who are stiff necked. That truth transforms our lives, and everything we do should be those who recognize we have passed through death. We are the ones who've passed through the Red Sea, and not in Moses. We were baptized into Christ. All that Exodus signified was yes for their people then, but more so for all God's people in Christ, the church. Why does this matter? This knowledge means that we can face death itself in this world knowing that we have passed through it. How significant is it for us to know we've passed through death? And that's not a gimmick. That's not just us saying that, oh yeah, that's kind of that's cute that we can think of it that way. We've passed through death, but not think we really have. We've passed through the far more significant death of eternal death. 
It's behind us, just as Egypt was behind them. The Red Sea lies between us. The waters have covered the devil and his minions. There is no going back. We've been carried through. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory when the the true death has occurred for us in Christ? We've exodus through it. We've passed it. Why does this matter to us? Do we fear the sufferings of life? The Apostle Paul showed what the knowledge of salvation in Christ, what the knowledge of Exodus does. He was willing to bear beatings, whippings, stonings, shipwrecks, imprisonment, starvation, insults, all for the sake of the one hope of Exodus. Delivery from sin. The whole life of Paul, the whole life of the Christian is to be permeated by the knowledge and it is unfitting for those who have partaken of Exodus to live as if they've not. We need to see ourselves as the true people of God brought through the true Exodus, none other than Jesus Christ himself. The new Exodus is nothing short of attaining the very thing, loss, the presence of God. So in Exodus, this model, one of the the sermons I spoke of Exodus as that model engine like that plastic engine that you make as a model to see how it works, to see the, 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 the shafts turn, to see the valves open, to see how an engine works, and it's pulled back, and it's, it's clearly, it's clear plastic, so you can see what's going on. That's what Exodus is. It's a little model of heaven. It's a little model of what God was going to do, so we could see all the parts work, to see what would be done, and that's exactly what Christ did. Perhaps Bilbo's title is a good one for redemption. There and back again. But what we don't mean is there in the promised land, back again in Canaan. We mean there in the garden, the presence of God to be brought back again through Christ, who has now come to dwell with us. The Holy Spirit to dwell in us. As we saw the very tabernacle, the dwelling of God is the church takes his abode in us. And so the goal of Exodus is reunion with God, fulfilled in Christ. We've, we've gone there from there and have come back again, which we never thought possible in the sin of Adam. That's why the climax of Exodus isn't really the plagues. It isn't the law. The climax of Exodus is God with us. God with us. The very meaning of the name Emmanuel. Christ. God with us. That's the point of Exodus. There in his presence. And back again. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We praise you for an amazing truth of Exodus. Of redemption. We see that you have carried it out. We see that what we lost in Adam has been brought back again in Christ. We see that what was lost in a perfect garden has been even surpassed in Christ for what we await. We see that the truth of Exodus means we are not in the land of Egypt. We've been brought through. We've proceeded through the waters of judgment in the Red Sea. Our Christian baptism, we've proceeded through that in Christ. 
So we've been buried with him, but we have risen with him. Let this permeate our life. May we approach all things in the knowledge that we are the people of Exodus, the true people, on their way to true glory, but even now experiencing the first fruits of that in our communion with you right now. Commune with the King of all things who dwells with us through the Spirit, through the work, the Son. We praise you in